Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Court-martial was a way for the Continental Army and Navy to adjudicate charges brought against violations of the Articles of War. Such things as falling asleep on guard duty, desertion to the enemy, insulting an officer, misreporting information, thievery, all these things are all covered under the Articles of War. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Phil Weaver talking about the career and court-martial of New York officer Joel Pratt. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt and Company, publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, by Rick Atkinson. Available now. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're going to take a look at one of the really important aspects of military life, not just in the modern world, but in the 18th century. And that is that of the court-martial, specifically as it's applied in the early days of the war in New York State. Our guest today is Philip Weaver. He's a longtime contributor to the Journal of the American Revolution. And he has, through his career as a living historian, amongst other things, uh, written a number of articles, but really worked closely uh, with one specific group of soldiers uh, in New York State. One element that he will key in on in this episode is something that, quite frankly, has been in the news lately. The notion of military justice, military punishment, uh, and, for that matter, presidential pardons. But we're not going to get into that today. Uh, I always tell folks... I love to talk about politics, so long as it's 18th century politics only. Um, but we're going to talk about that today. What goes into a court martial? What gets you in front of that uh, group of judges, so to speak? Uh, some are for very heinous war crimes. Others are for infractions we would consider to be relatively minor, as Philip Weaver says today, like falling asleep uh, during your, uh, your watch post. Uh, it's a lot of things that I think... Movies have made it out to be, but that system is a lot of things as well that uh, maybe aren't so glamorous. So we're going to talk today with longtime contributor Philip Weaver uh, about his study of a man named Joel Pratt, his court-martial, and the revolution in upstate New York. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Philip Weaver. Philip Weaver, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Tell us about your background. Okay, I have been a, uh, let's put it this way, I have a perfect academic and professional background for doing historical writing. I'm a retired systems analyst and holds a BS degree in uh, business administration. So uh, it doesn't seem to fit, but it does work. Because since I was a kid, I was a, uh, a not on American history, uh, especially the American Civil War. Now, I only started dabbling in the American Revolution a little bit. But come to Bicentennial, when I was in college, uh, I discovered the world of living history. 
which is they call reenacting. I prefer to use the term living history. And I've been an active living historian since those days. I'm what they call a bicentennial baby. I bounced around with a number of organizations, but settled in with the Brigade of the American Revolution. And except for a few years that I was on hiatus, or all that time when I was in the brigade has been with the recreated Second New York, circa 1775, which is Colonel Pratt's, I'm sorry, Captain Pratt, regiment. So uh, over the years, uh, I have done tailoring, got awards for it. I'm a presenter. Uh, I'm an independent researcher. And I've also been right on a national level as early as 1979. Now, initially, I focused on Red War living history and general history. I did for Black Powder magazines. But I migrated into articles on uniforms, unit histories, veteran stories, things like this. And considering uh, my interest with the brigade where we focus on common soldiers, it's natural for me to write about veterans. And um, this article in the jar, in the jar is uh, my ninth. So I'm quite proud of that. Um, I'm an original member of the company Military Historians West Point chapter. And I have served as their chairman. And in May of 2004, I was elected fellow of the company Military Historians. Now, uh, most recently, uh, through my side business, Continental Consulting, I'm credited as the editor and principal author of a little thing called The Greatest Hits of the Colonial Chronicle, the Rev War Collection, which was published in June of 2016. That's my little uh, living history book. I'm going to do some other historical stuff soon, but that's where I'm at now. What first drew your interest into this topic? Sure. Um, since I recreated the second New York for 35 years or more, uh, I felt I should do something as a unit history. I always wanted to do it. Now, what uh, part of that history uh, is the stories of the soldiers. That's really, as I said before, that's kind of where my focus is. And there are um, some are just some are just have names. I don't have I don't know everybody, but I have most of the names. And others have more extensive stories, like this one. Because I found when you're doing history of regiments and units, and you see this with, with, with Todd Brace that does, and Dot Hayes, they're talking about soldiers. Um, you can talk about a unit history. You know, you got the big picture history. Then you talk about unit history. But then you start tracking the regiments, and then you say, well, wait a minute. This isn't telling me where they were, because they were kind of all over the place. Then you're talking about red companies. And ultimately, when you're talking about companies, you start talking about men. Because the men move around. They go from here, they go from there, etc. So um, this is where my brain is at, and this is what I focus on. Now, I was inspired to start getting into the history of the soldiers and what happened to them. Back, I think it was 1998, when we did a big event up in Quebec. And we had a chance to go view and do a ceremony at the uh, grave of uh, Richard Montgomery. And actually, it was his former grave. He's no longer buried there, but uh, Captain Cheeseman and Lieutenant Colonel McPherson are buried there. And a number, I believe it's 13, but the number always escapes me, of soldiers that are buried there. And nobody knows their name. I said, they're mostly first New York, as far as I can tell from my research. I can't identify them. There's just no muster rolls available. We don't know her that who they are. So I said, well, I really wanted to do that because I should, because it's important to know the names of soldiers. My father was a World War II veteran. He left a lot of guys over there in Europe. Uh, I know what it means to him. I grew up 
VFW, the whole bit. I've seen all this stuff. And I, I know it's important, but I couldn't do it. But I said, listen, I can do this for a second because, uh, and I tracked down where the muster rolls were, and I started looking up the muster rolls. I looked up the names, and uh, off we go. You know, this is kind of what I decided to do, finding the men of the regiment. Now, what got me going with this as far as articles was I was, Don Hages, you, you know who Don is, right? <laughs> Uh, we, uh, I was continually being bugged to write for the jar and as I used original sources and Don likes that. So we came up with an idea for me, uh, after kicking around a lot of possibilities to tell the stories of the men of the second York, cause I was going to use that as part of a book. So I said, why don't you write the articles for the jar and then you can use them as a basis to do a book. And that's kind of how I started. And then I threw in some of the stories of the third Jersey of 76, which is a little side interest of mine. And I've been going ever since. Your article features a little-known figure from the Revolutionary Age named Joel Pratt. Who was he? Tell us about his world. Sure. As, as many of them are. In fact, most, from what I've seen out of the 2nd New York Regiment, I can only identify about 10% that went on after the first year of the war. They didn't go any farther. They never served again. And Pratt is one of these guys. Pratt was basically a member of a militia company that was in, let's just call it Eastern New York. And he uh, was just unbeknownst. There's no record that I can find of anything he ever did before then. He was just one of the obscure soldiers in the, in the revolution. Um, now, this I learned uh, that he was part of a, a small company that decided, let's go to Boston and join up and join the, the men up there to fight the British in Boston. This is where the war was, and these guys were going, almost like a movie. I can't remember the name of it, but it reminds me of a Civil, a, a Civil War movie. So I was a kid. Oh, let's go fight the war. <laughs> and they get out there, and they elect Pratt captain. So he must have had some standing of some type. And on their way out, he said, well, let's go. And they said, well, half of them got cold feet. The, the half of the half did get signed up and the rest were left. And he said, listen, we want to come in and join as a company. They, they sent him home. They said, you don't have enough men. You don't have a group. Regroup and come on back. So he went home and basically recruited more guys. And at the same time now, Ethan Allen has taken Ticonderoga. And I don't go into this in this particular article, but uh, Ethan Allen is begging for help because once everybody sobers up the next day, and that's a joke. I don't know if that's documented. <laughs> they said, hey, come and bail us out here because the British are going to come back and take this place. So Albany County of New York had agreed to send militia troops. Um, basically, they were ad hoc. Call them levies, for lack of a better term. Or we use the term provincials in this case. And provincials that were on the colonial side. That gets That's a nice gray area. I get in arguments with Todd Bracelet because the early war regiments were provincial regiments because they fought for the provinces. They weren't fighting for the states because Declaration of Independence wasn't even signed yet, obviously. So um, he, gets, he decides, well, they want me to go, to go up north rather than go to Boston because I'm needed here. I'm not going to go to Boston. So this is what he does. He takes his company. He signs up with the Albany Provincials, and he says, we're going north to Ticonderoga. And uh, this company eventually becomes part of the 2nd New York because all those provincial companies are absorbed into that regiment, and they basically serve in the what we call the lakes area of Lake Champlain and Lake George. What did Pratt's initial orders look like? 
Well, he is actually not, nothing happens by order. What, nothing happens at first. How can I phrase it that way? He, um, he takes, he has two positions in his old provincial company, an ensign, which is an infantry term for basically a flag carrier, a junior officer. Um, usually it's, they used to have, sometimes have cadets and, or that are gentlemen volunteers, or in this case, they were ensigns, the lowest ranked company grade officer. And then the other position was a clerk. Yes, they had company clerks in the 18th century, I guess. But uh, none of these two positions were not part of the second New York structure. Now, what Pratt chose to do was, you know what? I'm not going to tell anybody about these guys, but I'm going to list them as something else. He listed one as a hospital steward, and the answer he listed as a private. Now, this is not something you're supposed to do. In fact, this is a serious violation of what they call the Articles of War. It's, it's a real bad problem. And yes, Pratt was a bit of a maverick, and he does have this, and I discovered this with part of the article, he's definitely a bit uh, independent. So he should have done it, but, and the lieutenant colonel is the kind of officer that most enlisted men, you know, they, they knock out and they put in the, uh, put in the garbage can, uh, they tell him how to put his gators on the wrong way, this kind of thing. They just hated this guy, apparently. And it's Lieutenant Colonel Peter Yates. And he catches what Pratt's doing, and he tells Pratt, get these guys in, in a position, they can't do this anymore. That's bottom line what he did. He didn't arrest them, he just said, you got to do this. He simply refused to do what Pratt told him. And he told the colonel off. They don't, in, any, in, in the trial transcript, they don't say he actually used a few expletives, but I believe he did. Probably gave him the finger, a few other things. We don't really know. But it got Yates mad enough, the lieutenant colonel, to offer to take him and duel him in one form or another. Now, this in turn is a violation of the Articles of War. Now, Pratt is rather frosted, so he says, you know something? I'm going to leave. And he just stormed off. He didn't react to it. He didn't do anything. He said, he left. Now, somewhere at this point, Pratt's arrested. But at the same time, he also discharges these two men. Now, I don't know if he did it before or after that. I couldn't get straight. I couldn't figure it out. And I don't really know at what point, which came first, the arrest or the release of these guys. There's a term you use in your article, a very important one, and I find one that's not well understood in the revolutionary period for average people. You mentioned the Committee of Safety. That can be a little convoluted, but uh, could you tell us about that? What was the Committee of Safety? In 1774, the first Continental Congress that a lot of people forget about, they implemented a system called the Continental Association, also known as the Association, uh, to implement a... Uh, trade boycott and other type of economic sanctions. Sanctions go back that far <laughs> and uh, to pressure Great Britain into redressing their grievances um, as a colony and particularly regarding the intolerable acts. I believe they're also called the Townsend Acts that caused all these problems. And in fact, they were the worst thing Britain, in my opinion, did. They like, pushed all this stuff over the top. So in order to do this, they formed these committees throughout 
the colonies in all the different counties that have these things to start doing these kind of boycotts. Now, they didn't really have an authority to do it, so they formed a thing called the Committee of Inspections. And these were the people to go out and enforce their sanctions to say various merchants weren't dealing with Britain, find out if they were doing it to shut them down, to tell them, hey, look, you got to sell within the colonies, you can't sell to Britain. And this Committee of Inspection, then they is obviously going to create some political problems and things like this. People aren't going to like it, yada, yada, yada. So uh, we end up with another committee called the Committee of Correspondence. Now, this is a, uh, how can I put it, a spin machine to basically spin the political to the public why this is happening, what are we doing here, why. Now, on top of this, the Committee of Correspondence now is has a subset developed called the Committee of Safety to get back to your question. And the Committee of Safety, and I have no idea why they called it the Committee of Safety, but they actually become an extra-legal body that is, is for executive purpose to replace the provincial congresses and assemblies or whatever they have in the various colonies when they're adjourned. So there's a constant uh, administrative organization running things. And that's what the Committee of Safety basically did. Now, they kind of got into issuing guns, recruiting soldiers. They got to be pretty powerful. And uh, these, all these committees, they're known as, but let me back up a little bit. Let me, I probably should have made this example. In New York, the New York Committee of Safety, and I'm not sure, and it's not very clear if that New York Committee of Safety is the county of New York or if it's part, if it's for the whole colony. But that group constantly would step in for the New York Provincial Congress when they were adjourned. And you can see it in the journals of the Provincial Congress. They will go out, all, the, all of a sudden you see Committee of Safety notes, and here's the Committee of Safety for the next week, week and a half, and all of a sudden it's back to the Provincial Congress again. It's probably the same people. I haven't gone through and looked at all the individuals, but they're all wearing multiple hats. And uh, all these committees got all these different names. And it's all but impossible to figure out who's who and what they are and where they are and what the different names are. And they're all getting used the term committee. In fact, Albany simplified everything, which is where Pratt came out of, is they said, we're going to call ourselves the Committee of Safety, Correspondence, and Protection of Albany. They just lumped everything together into one committee that they obviously called the committee. And the committee is basically ran everything out of Albany. And it kind of just blurred everything together into one, one, one lump. Now, the bottom line with all this is, uh, people forget this, the, and I did mention it's an extra-legal body. The, 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 these committees, are, i.e. the Committee of Safety specifically, is an extra-legal body to take over for the extra-legal body of the congressional, I'm sorry, the provincial congresses and assemblies, and then in turn that had taken over from the weakened royal force uh, uh, governments. And so now you've got a double illegal body running the colonies. It's, a, it's amazing how much this convoluted thing is. So they just dropped this term committee safety, and it's much bigger, and it's far more involved. And most people don't realize how, 
how nutty it is. And it's frankly so complicated, it's impossible to really figure it out without detailed study of the individuals and where they are and what they did. Now, Pratt will face a court-martial. Uh, could you talk about what a court-martial was and maybe how it was utilized in the 18th century? Oh, sure. And I got into court-martials with, the, with my article on the plundering of Johnson Hall with the 3rd New Jersey, which is a bigger court-martial. But basically, a court-martial was a way for the Continental Army and Navy to adjudicate charges brought against violations of the Articles of War. Now, the Articles of War... Continental Congress, the second one, came up with just right at the beginning of the American Revolution. And it's numbers, I can't remember the exact number, but it's a lot. It's like 50 of them or more. And there's so many, I don't know how anybody could remember what they are. But these basically governed the Army. And today we have the uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ. You hear a lot of people talking about it. It's essentially the same thing. And uh, such things as falling asleep on guard duty, desertion to the enemy, insulting an officer, uh, misreporting information, thievery, all these things are all covered under the Articles of War. Now, uh, the nature of the, def- the offense determines how large the court-martial is. Oftentimes, these things are small within the regiment. They're a smaller-sized court-martial with a smaller number of um, judges, quote-unquote, which are basically just officers, and then others be called what they call general court-martials, which are larger ones, would have about 13 officers. Now, (laughs) that's a lot of officers. Now, people forget that, and that's what Pratt was brought up under charges of a general court-martial. And that means there's all these officers come in from different regiments. So they're not members of his regiment and Pratt's regiment, because Pratt was in the second as well. I'm sorry, not Pratt, uh, Yates. They, uh, they're not, it's not a regimental trial. It's a court-martial for the, the army, or at least th- that army that's in that geographic area of the lakes, and Lake Ticonderoga, Lake George, et cetera. So it's a big deal. It is really a big deal. Now, uh, i trying to think how we can phrase this here. Uh, the Articles of War basically were established very similar to the British Army. The British had these same things. So uh, you're going to... This is common. What is interesting is, in the early part of the war, there's a lot of men. The, the New York Line had 750-man regiments, which is huge. The Connecticut first establishment regiments of 1775, as far as I can tell, they had about 1,000 men each. Now, that's a lot of men and a lot of officers. Towards the end of the war, they had so many officers in the Army because the number of men depleted they had scads of officers. They could do all the court-martial boards they wanted. They had more officers. They knew what, they, what to do with them. In fact, they accessed a lot of them. Um, and uh, so this was a way to, uh, you can use up your officer corps by putting them on court-martials. But that's not the reason they had court-martials. But it's very interesting. But early in the war, they're taking guys away from, officers away from active units that have a lot of men in them. But it's what they did and how they operated. Just like the Army today, basically. How does Pratt's story play out? What's the end of this? Pratt was, I say, a prickly cuss, and he simply, after the trial was over, he was acquitted. He went back to command his company. And then come November, he uh, refuses to, uh, I I take it back, he is either he refuses or he uh, did not get the order to extend their lessons for their company, i.e. re-engage. So at the end of the 12 months, 
of his enlistment in December, he's he whacked, he says, I'm out of here. Now, at this time, they're up in Montreal, and it gets a few people mad, but he just takes off. Now, when he's done, his, his, his men, he and his men, a few stay, but almost all of them leave. So he basically returns home, and he goes back to the local militia, and uh, though I don't know exactly what he did there, but in early 76, he actually was brought, uh, I did not put this in the article, but he does appear to be part of a potential unnumbered regiment, uh, Continental Battalion to come out of Albany, but they didn't call it up. He was going to be the major. So this was a compliment. After all, what he went through to be be made a major, pretty cool, but they uh, they didn't do anything with it. So he basically goes back home and he stays there. And he does get listed as on what they call the Association of Exempts. One of the officers, he's basically a reserve officer. He sits there, doesn't do anything. He's only going to be there if they need him. So he doesn't do anything more the rest of the war. And about 1802, he, uh, he buys some land out in Steuben County, New York, which is out on the the uh, what we call it here the uh, I can't remember the name of it the Panhandle let's call it that I can't think of the name of the lower tier and he's out that way and um, he basically forms a town and it's named after him Prattville. Philip Weaver, thank you for joining us. Okay, you're welcome. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.